Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. Introduce thine selves. (laughs) (laughs) Who have we here? I'm Steve Seifert, surrogate, Woodross. And I'm Aaron O'Rourke. You know, a surrogate has certain roles they have to fill. (laughs) <laughs> what roles would you fill for Steve Seifert, Butch Ross? Well, I see myself more as a presidential surrogate. Uh, so I feel like my job is to uh, say things that don't make sense at first. You're the non sequiturigate. But have an internal logic. Oh, Steve sure. Seifert is not a non sequitur guy. He's the king of the almost non sequitur. There's a thread that connects everything he says to everything you said. Yeah. You just don't see the plinko game it runs through before it comes out the other side yeah sometimes <laughs> observing <laughs> and that i process, mean that as compliment no no i know you do. <laughs> observing that process happen in a person who's got a lot going on in their head can either leave you feeling like three things one like wow they're really smart because i didn't get that or like they're really clueless because i didn't get that <laughs> or i'm really smart because i followed them or the fourth we might all be insane <laughs> Because it kind of makes sense. Usually the fourth. Well, it's really probably not good for us to talk about Seifert since he's not here. Yeah. No. I'm Dan Landrum, by the way. And uh, Steve is probably sleeping off having done an orchestral gig. I think he played Blackberry Winter last night. And oh. where was he? Anybody know? Mm-mm. I am In, not my brother. Anyway, keeper. yeah. This is today's date, by the way. This is the... 27th of September, if you're listening to this at some time in the future, or really cool if you're listening to it sometime in the past. I want to know how that works, so come <laughs> to the future and tell us. And as we... Uh, how funny would it be if someone just ran through the door right then and tackled you? <laughs> I'm from the future and I'm here to stop you. <laughs> wow, let me, let me think about that for a minute. <laughs> I think I would not believe that they were really from the future awesome we're 45 seconds in and i've hijacked the conversation already no no, no. <laughs> you have not hijacked it you just pointed out the road yeah. seriously <clears throat> if someone says that they are about to show you something impossible and they show it to you mm-hmm. did they just show you something impossible well that all depends i mean were they throwing their hand down in the pool while my back is turned and telling me that it's raining. Like, <laughs> I would never do that to a child. Right, not, not to a grandchild. Yeah, <laughs> yeah certainly. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so, uh, so sometimes I guess uh, I, I've been on this air, uh, ergo-propped, non-propter hawk, ergo-hawk, non-propter hawk uh, thing lately where Noticing how often we say things and then make conclusions when if we really were to stop and look at them. So I guess what I'm saying is if somebody ran in here, said they were from the future, and they heard this later and just wanted to let me know, my first inclination would not be to go, oh, cool, somebody just came from the future and told me this. Right? It would be to think that there was something else up. Right. That's funny. You know, that's not where I thought you were going with that. Oh, really? I thought you were... The direction I thought you were going uh, with the whole time travel thing was, if you could go back in time when you're starting your dulcimer career, what what would you tell yourself? 
would you say, hey, good idea, keep going? Oh, are we talking or, about the whole career is a good idea or how to learn to play? <laughs> <laughs> Either. Or, hey, y- you might want to hold those hammers a little differently. Or, hey, um, you might fit in a little bit better socially if... Uh, <laughs> 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 There's an Ergo Hawk post Proctor Hawk that actually does work out. Because no, you won't. <laughs> I think that's fully justifiable. That uh, it's probably our social skills that led us to where we are now. <laughs> well, in my case, I came to the dulcimer late, so really it was more of a prompter hawk, ergo post hawk. Oh, <laughs> you know, my mind going to be less popular because i already am (laughs) (laughs) so i don't i don't mind this thread at all where you started going there for a second mr aaron like you look like you need to oh no i was was actually gonna say i realized i've known you for a while now and i i don't actually know how you got into the dulcimer oh well um i uh was living in um philadelphia which as you know is an appalachian culture hotbed yeah and um Beep, beep, beep. Warning, warning. <laughs> and this, I listened to... This is um, not Dan speaking. This is the computer letting the podcasters know that people don't really care too much about our personal histories. Beep, beep, beep. Continue. <laughs> Anyways, I've been a singer-songwriter, and I lived with another musician who was also a folk musician. And you know how when you play one instrument for a while, you get interested in others. Sure. Well, you know, usually that's a mandolin or a banjo or something. But we had all those. But we didn't have a dulcimer, and I thought the dulcimer was neat. Because it had two strings that were together, and then it had two strings that were single strings, and it had the weird fretboard, and and so I just decided that it would be neat to have. So much so that I had a guitar that I tuned D-A-D-D-A-D, so that I could try and play it like a dulcimer, oh, yeah. which didn't work. But um, And then just somebody got me one as a, as a birthday present. Ah, there's your... There's that's, your that's the answer. What? That's the answer people really want to know. How did you get started? Somebody got me one as a birthday present. So you're saying that took too long. Yeah. <clears throat> For any of us who tell our whole stories, because nobody really wants to know that, especially on stage. Go ahead. I, I don't know if it's really okay to say. We watched the, the presidential debate last night. And, oh, it was okay. And, yeah, yeah um, Dan's most common critique of the candidates was, they should have stopped. <laughs> well, like, oh, that yeah. could have been a lot shorter. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. This so that's a good good statement. Almost everything that we say could be shortened. And the observation is, and this kind of doesn't necessarily work when we 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 start talking about ourselves. We're we're doing that because it's really interesting to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not necessarily those that are listening, but most of the time when we have the least amount of knowledge, we. Talk longer. Well, I, we, we say I the realize, greatest amount of words. I realize a lot of times, a lot of times, if I'm if I give a long answer to something, I'm processing it verbally. That's right. Yeah, that I'm I'm literally thinking through all of it yeah. as I say it. Now, in the case of that story, I'm, I hate telling that story because it so is sorry. too long. But but I feel that I feel the backstory is important because I had spent my entire career trying to be a musician professionally. And nothing clicked until I started to play the dulcimer. But I think if we were having this conversation over the course of hours on a, mm-hmm. on a road trip or something, we're all driving somewhere, we could come up with 
different reasons why we started playing dulcimers yeah. based on where the conversation was going. I think if the three sure. of us were having this conversation on a lo- long road trip, the question would be, why does Angie keep throwing herself out of the car? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there's a short answer for that. <laughs> the door open and she's gone. You, uh, you haven't. You, it's time for you to take another trip because lately she mostly just throws me out. <laughs> <laughs> Things have changed. <laughs> yeah. So... You you guys both, speaking of how you got started, this isn't necessarily what got you started here, but you guys both have, or all three of us actually, have musical backgrounds playing in bands growing mm-hmm. up and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you guys both played in punk bands at some point. Yeah, right? well, that was what prompted me to, what prompted me to write you about having that discussion was that when I was listening to the podcast last week, Aaron was talking about growing up in punk bands. And I had grown up in punk bands, but Aaron's. When did you start playing? Uh, when I was in high school, which was in the early two thousands. Right. So I did it in the early mid eighties. So by the time, and by the time I got out of it, which was like ninety three, that had, it had already the culturally had already changed a lot. It was mm-hmm. very very different than when I got started, and that's what I thought was interesting because what his experience would have been would have actually been very different. Than mine was. You lost me just a little. The culture yeah. of uh, punk rock, alternative music, whatever. You know, and it was a very underground thing until Nirvana basically made it all an above ground thing. But all, but also even within it, you know, it used to be punk rock meant anything. If you were just if you were in a punk, you might be in a punk rock band. You might be in a rockabilly band. You might be in a what we call so, a goth band. Or you whatever. guys know more about this than I do, so I really am asking a question, not trying to lead the conversation. Sure, my first exposure to punk bands was Johnny Rotten and the Sex Pistols and that's mm-hmm. sort of where sure. I think it came out of obscurity yeah. to and me room- but that's probably 10 years prior to what you guys were talking about well for me it was a touchstone because that that was I was part of the wave of people that were influenced by that okay you know what I mean I wasn't there when it when it happened and I'm I'm going to say that those people that were in the Sex Pistols when they came out would tell you, well, really, it was the MC5s and I've heard that story. New York yeah. Dolls, mm-hmm. you know. So everything comes everything comes from from somewhere. But um, but I'll tell you what was interesting and what it was what was appealing to me about that stuff and Johnny Rotten in particular was that there was more. It wasn't about. Basically, all it said was, you don't have to be good at this. <laughs> right. You just have to have something to say. Or in the case of Sid Vicious, you just you really you not, not only need to be you don't need to be good. You don't need to know how to tune you need a, or you need anything. A dog collar yeah. and yeah. Courtney Love. That's it. Right. But, but when I when I started, hence to, I when, married Angie. <laughs> when I started to play. When I started to play dulcimer, you know, and I met Robert Force, and he was like, you know, you got to check out Richard Farina. You really remind me of Richard Farina. So I went back and I checked out Richard Farina, and I mean, I read positively Fourth Street and the whole nine, and I realized that, you know, he was basically an author or a poet who wanted to be a rock star, and he saw that with the dulcimer, he could do that. And to me, I was like, oh, so he was like Johnny Rotten. He, you know, he wasn't very necessarily very good, but he had something this, that he wanted to say. That's really interesting mm-hmm. that you see it that way. I, I, this imagery that I was getting when you were 
you know, talking about what uh, Robert told you would make me think about the bards. Hmm. You know, go go way farther back than that. Somebody mm-hmm. who was a poet and mm-hmm. probably picked up an interest, an instrument, a lyre or whatever, mm-hmm. in order to tell a story. Right. Still a lot of that. Oh, and who's and mean. who's to say? I'm 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 just saying what I saw. I mean, who's to say what Robert saw in me? You know. Sure. So, um, yeah, you're, you're exciting me though. Actually, about music. I mean, that's that whole concept is. I write a lot. Mm-hmm. Generally about things that are kind of boring and technical, but uh, the thought of being able to—I mean, I'm envious of you, Butch. The fact that you you sing, and though I grew up singing in choirs and things, mm-hmm. I just, it just scares me to death. You you're a better singer than I am. It's I just I grew up in Philadelphia, where we have an unwarranted sense of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> That we just, you know, I was saying this. I get too emotional too, though. I was explaining this to uh, to Ray Zimmerman, who's a great poet oh, here yeah. in, in town. And I was explaining to him that when I grew up in Philadelphia, a, a poet was someone who lacked the talent to figure out two chords on a guitar. And so <laughs> it was just really bad, bad, bad. It was just, you know, poetry in Philadelphia is dreadful, just truly dreadful. Um you know, so it was kind of a surprise to come to Chattanooga and hear really good poetry. You know what I mean? All right. Wow. Aaron, I feel like you're being left out of this, but oh, I'm no. just going to have to dig in. But I got to take this off on a minor tangent. Okay. That just popped into my head. So, like you said about Sid Vicious. Right. Just, it. he wasn't a musician. No. Uh, but people... Because he was in a band, people would say he was a musician because musicians are members of a band. Sure. So therefore, he got some of the, some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is going to be dangerous, and I am absolutely Lovely. showing a lack of culture on my part. But as I was growing up, poems really did rhyme. <laughs> they People worked. You know, you couldn't just write something and say it. With a cadence like this, and thus, it has meaning. Now, I stand behind what I say. And well, call yourself a poet. Well, that just reeks of middle class. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is... Yeah. <laughs> Suck it, Walt Whitman. <laughs> <laughs> My point is, maybe that's what Sid Vicious was doing. No, he was just a heroin addict. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole... (laughs) That might have been what Johnny Rotten was doing. Yeah. But but yeah. Well, I think it is is kind of interesting going from, uh, from punk rock into traditional music and seeing... I think a surprising amount of similarities mm-hmm. in some ways. I think um, particularly at the time that I was getting into punk rock where you had, uh, I think, some bands actually getting some notoriety and making money and selling out, as mm-hmm. the rest of the punk scene would say. Right. Some were still back in the, the late 70s, like revering the Sex Pistols or the early 80s with Black Flag and mm-hmm. and uh, and all that that great stuff and so you had uh you had some people saying like well that like blink 182 like well that's not punk rock or like nirvana nirvana that's not punk rock 
kind of like what's happening with newer bluegrass bands. Um, oh, yeah. That go yeah. outside of the Bill Monroe format. Um, Snobs. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Blue, bluegrass, bluegrass, ragtime, and reggae are three forms of music where your value is judged by how much you sound like one dude. Hmm. You know, you can't play ragtime and not sound too, without, if you don't sound enough like Joplin, they go, well, that's not really ragtime. So uh, I think what you said is probably something that people say. No, just me. Oh. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not trying to just argue with you, but I think we do have to be careful about something that persons say. Sure, 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 sure. But I mean, you think yeah. when you think of it, you think of one thing. Yeah, but I bet it's like, I know I've, I've referred to this three times, at least on these podcasts. Back when I used to work in public radio and I got to interview really fantastic performers coming through to play with mm-hmm. uh, the orchestra, guest performers and things. For the most part, when I met them, it broke the stereotypes of uh-huh. what people like this were like. Mm-hmm. They generally, those who, who were like really sort of at the top of their game, were kind of all over the map and what they liked and what they listened to and what they would do. And I think we've had this discussion with Seifert before. It, it's often the person who considers themselves to be very technically knowledgeable about a subject, not necessarily with a lot of skills at executing the subject, that tend to have a lot of rules about what you should and shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So, like, and I'm thinking about how that applies, you know, to a Chris Thiele. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what I'm saying, what I'm, I'm not. First of all, I'm not talking about the individuals, okay. so, right? So, uh, but, but you know, if you think reggae, okay, right now, right now, you're hearing a variation on Bob Marley or Peter Tosh somehow. But there's a whole lot of reggae. It doesn't sound remotely like that. Like when it's played at a dulcimer festival. <laughs> <laughs> Serious? Is it reggae? Huh? Is it reggae? Well, it depends if they're not if they're on the one and the three. No, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, but I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't lend authenticity. I think there's a style. There's a style of music. There's a genre of of music. You know, well, it's well. It's, I think it is. I think it is reggae, and I think it's the way <clears throat> these people play reggae. And yeah, I'm not the, disagreeing. You know, that's my point. It's. Yeah. Uh, I think it is. It's just kind of culturally that's where this thing is here. Yeah, uh, but I'm saying in a broader sense. In a broader sense, you see it as one thing. You know, when I say reggae, when I say bluegrass, there's one idea. I know this sounds like I'm just arguing with you because that's what you and I do all the time. That's true. We haven't taken any road trip. This is going to be long. Inform the affiliates we're going to run long. I swear to you, that's not, that's, that's not where I'm trying to come from. Uh, I think this classification of things mm-hmm. is doomed to failure. Well, yeah, already. I, like uh, Edgar Meyer, uh, in an interview, after recording the Goat Rodeo Sessions with Chris Thiele, Yo-Yo Ma, and Stuart Duncan, described it as genre-proof, which is practically becoming its own genre oh, of good. progressive a- acoustic players. Like like you mentioned uh, Chris Thiele earlier and Punch Brothers. Like I don't think they're terribly concerned with genre. I know from... 
watching the documentary about them that they absolutely don't want to be billed as bluegrass because that right. sets up an expectation, mm-hmm. which is going to profoundly disappoint an audience who goes to see them. See, and, <laughs> yes. that's, and, that's, and that's what I'm saying. That's where the, that's where the, the boundaries are important in that regard. I the see. boundaries are interesting. The boundaries are interesting to me because I like smashing through them and blending things together you know but, what i mean there's a song there's a song on the record that i'm just finishing up that has uh utah phillips spoken word uh clyde stubblefield's funky drummer and a sample of the cincinnati dulcimer club same um, song just yeah. smashed smashed and it works it works as a thing you know what i mean um so, uh so the classific Vacations are only interesting to me in terms of what he was saying. How? Sure. What are other people thinking when they think about this thing? Right. It's, and it's those, not what I think. And that's one of that's the... That's not what you think about music in general. Right. And that's one of the things that I was interested to talk about with you, Aaron, because... Wait, wait. But before you leave this... Because mm-hmm. of what you around this, this is where... you know I'd agree with you on this. That if Chris Thiele or if Edgar Meyer... You know, or well, it wouldn't work with Yo Yo Ma because the instrument's wrong. Played if played with Bill Monroe's band when he was alive. They were guesting. Mm-hmm. They probably wouldn't be doing whole tone scales. They probably, if if the show was at a trad bluegrass festival, uh-huh. they would know exactly how to fit in and play what is the accepted version of that style. Mm-hmm. And and. I have a feeling that they might even ask, like, hey, you want to try something a little weird? You know, just to... And I'm, I don't think any of that's bad, because it is good to learn a style. You know, you learn a lot about that style. But what bothers me about genres in general is that uh, they are they limit young people coming up sometimes from moving the craft. It's like we all become little record players, you know. It's like we're trying to reproduce this thing that's already been done and play it a certain way, and that's what I think is cool about you mashing stuff up, you know. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing, Aaron, is trying to push these technical limits, you know, of yourself and therefore mm-hmm. of your arranging. And both of you guys are just coming up with really <laughs> cool stuff. It's not it's not been done before, and it is not genre proof it's genre agnostic (laughs) it just doesn't know what genre it really is there's um i'm not 100 percent sure that i agree with you about that because when i started so when i started to play guitar Mm -hmm. my goal as a guitar player was to sound like me that was all i wanted to do i didn't want to sound you know, there's always a guitar player who could sound just like Eddie Van Halen or whatever. I think that came were... along later, Butch. What's that? I think that came along later. No, it certainly did not. I, I was surrounded by guitar players who were trying to sound exactly like Eddie Van Halen. I, I, I cite him as the musical influence because everybody wanted to sound like Eddie Van Halen. But when prior I to that, guitar. prior to that, prior to prior to even noticing what other people were playing, there was something that got you interested in it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because, oh, I want to express myself with a guitar. There was something, there was some form, there was something that made you like this. Well, I've always wanted to play music. And it might have just been, mm-hmm. the girls will like me. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, there's, there's some of that. No, I've always wanted to play music. As early as I can remember, I've wanted to play music. My first memory is of my dad singing to me, you know. 
So Aaron just gave me that look because he knows I'm reading a book on how memories actually work right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, throw some science at you, uh, but I'm not. Yeah. I, I was I was thinking Dan's about to argue this because we just had the well, <laughs> we didn't go all the way down that road, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I'm gonna let it go. I was wow, <laughs> just gonna let it go. Wow, that's two times in a row you've let that go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I see what you're saying, Butch, and I think depending on where we pick it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess we all have different... I didn't know what the hammer dulcimer was supposed to sound like. I came to it in a bit of a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, having just heard the one album. And even then, not Which knowing... Album? Malcolm Douglas is jogging the memory. Mm-hmm. Okay. And not even knowing that it was a hammer dulcimer, just thinking, those are really cool sounds. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. then I picked up this thing called an album cover that had really large photographs on it. (laughs) And here's this guy hitting this thing with sticks. And I really said, I can hit things with sticks. (laughs) And I bought one two days later. Yeah. Yeah. I I just jumped in. I think if I had been exposed to it at the right age, I'd be a hammer dulcimer player because when I was, when I was younger, I wanted a, to be my two favorite things. One was I wanted to be a drummer. So I love banging on things. And two, Playing the piano and never taking my foot off the sustain pedal. That's totally what I did. Ever, ever. I would just, till the whole thing was like humming. My parents would be in the kitchen and my grandpa's going, lick your foot! <laughs> when you play on the black keys only, huh? the sustain pedal's your friend. Yeah, You yeah. can stay on the sustain, sustain pedal forever. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, totally. But I love that. So, you know, so a piano with a, with the piano where the sustain pedal's always down and you can hit it with sticks, I'm in. Yeah, it was, it's, it's fun. Yeah. But now it's I can't. It's like trying to read the Wall Street Journal. It's just too much, too much information. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. It's, I feel that's I'm, Aaron's teaching me mountain dulcimer, and I'm teaching him hammer dulcimer, and, I, and I'm still at the place where I feel that way about the mountain dulcimer. It seems like a lot more thinking is involved in it because with this, mm-hmm. uh, with a hammer, I'm looking at my hammer dulcimer right now. It's just little patterns. It's just shapes and stuff that I play mostly in sounds mm-hmm. that I like to hear, and I. It's shaped. It's shaped with the mountain dulcimer too, but yeah. the, but the shapes do. change. That's the thing. You move one shape around the the For space. For the most part, that's right. And yeah. we move. We change the shapes within the space. It's within the same space. That's yeah. ba- that's basically the difference. the The key to playing mountain dulcimer for me, I, I, I imagine, it's probably similar for you. But please, did it be? It's your turn to disagree with me. So. Um, is that I, I spend most of my knowledge, most of my musical knowledge when I play Mountain Dulcimer comes from knowing what to leave out. You know what I mean? I want to play this chord, but it's got five notes and I only have three to work with. So what do I leave out? What do I, I want to play bass, drums, and guitar all at once. What do I leave out? You know, and still make, make you hear the three instruments. I think both of you guys have this thing going for you that, is intimidating to many people trying to learn to play and that you guys have both have such a rich knowledge of guitar mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the way chords are built on guitars. No, I dulcimer definitely came before guitar mm-hmm. for me. Um, I didn't learn any jazz voicings on guitar or anything until after I learned all five notes of this chord, and, ju- and then just chose the three. What made you want to do that, though? Um, I was playing with a guitar player friend of mine in Tallahassee who 
probably inf- influenced my playing more than than anyone I know, and that he was he was an advanced guitar player, really knowledgeable in blue in flat picking, um, which is almost kind of its own subgenre <laughs> of music that includes like ragtime, jazz, bluegrass, and old time and Irish. But um, but we would take time, and he would he would say. So I don't know if this is possible on dulcimer, but do you want to figure it out? And I'd say, yeah, sure. So um, I've seen you do that dozens of times, Butch, by the way. Anyway. Yeah, so he would go, okay, so the first chord here, it's a blah, blah, blah. It's got this note, this note, this note, this note. And go, okay, so pick them out. And we would just try combinations, and we'd go that slowly. And luckily, he was patient enough and curious enough about the mountain dulcimer to want to work through this with me. And there were just, there were light bulbs going off every time I got together to play. That's you, dude. I mean, you're maybe, I hope you really like this guy because that's the way that I am learning working with you. Okay. Because, awesome. Because he's come, Aaron's coming up with stuff in this album project that we're working on, and mm-hmm. where he asked me to do things that are you just you probably would never come up with on the Hammer Dulcimer on your own. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because it's just not you know it's just not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, not, I like that. That's why. I mean, that's that's where that the thing you were mentioning that I do. It's about for me. It's always about. What shouldn't what should not be doable on this on this instrument, and then figuring out how to do it. It's not necessarily that I'm doing something amazing. It's just that I'm just looking at it in a way that hasn't been really considered. I think the mountain dulcimer is just really efficient. I don't think it's a simple instrument. I just think it's a really efficient one. You know. Yeah, and not not to force the conversation back into punk rock, but for me, when we start going into I think more complicated territory musically. I appreciate having a background in punk rock more. Um, that's not to say that that gave me any kind of foundation for musical knowledge because it, it really didn't. My system of playing for playing in a punk band was after I finally learned how to tune six months into playing in the <laughs> band. Um, the guitar players do nothing but power chords. I know, yeah. I'm, I'm a bit of a punk prodigy. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so the guitar player was doing nothing but power chords. And if you're not familiar with, uh, with guitar, a power chord is just this very simple moving shape. It's the equivalent of if you're playing mountain dulcimer tuned DAD tuning, if you just bar every fret straight across and you move that around. So playing bass i would just follow the same frets that he was playing and just play that root note i was playing with a pick i had no knowledge whatsoever of what i was doing but for me there was something really valuable and having that experience where there was nothing but raw emotion nothing too musically uplifting about it or complicated and i think just having that kind of that feeling of being hit in the gut and made to want to cry because we were i mean doing songs about stuff we had no business doing on subject matters we were not informed of at all um, but uh but still it's this powerful emotion that i think yeah punk rock was uh, maybe a little bit more of a mindset than a musical genre in that there were 
you could musically plug so many of these bands into different genres. I mean, some would fit, probably fit more uh, into steampunk, some even more into folk, if you look at, like, Billy Bragg or someone like that. You want to acknowledge, um, help but, us out with steampunk. But, yeah, there was... Uh, but there was some kind of continuity in that there was just this raw emotion, whether it was good or bad, that was kind of addictive at the time. And as I think a lot of the music that I'm into, as I'm, as I'm more driven by um, this idea of what do my fingers not want to do, and then trying to figure that out, and because my fingers haven't done it, it catches me by surprise, it gets me excited. The music gets more complicated, but I feel like there's still this present... Uh, feeling of I want to be punched in the gut and made to want to cry. And I think sometimes as music gets a little bit more complicated, for me anyway, sometimes it's easy to get away from that. But I feel like having that background in punk rock, that was my experience anyway. And that's not to say it's going to be the case for everyone. I mean, for some people growing up singing in church gave them that feeling of, you know, punched in the gut and made to you know, want I, to cry. I think you're but, coming right back to the, to the theme that we hit all the time, is that people come to these things because of the way it makes them feel. Yeah, for sure. And that's what you, you it's just that yeah, but yours it would is also be more hard, intense. It would also be hard to not acknowledge um, that the way this makes some people feel isn't related to the actual playing, as we've discussed before. Yeah, but you were talking about it as a player, though. Right, absolutely. And that's what I'm but talking about. But that's not where a lot of people are coming from. No. In the dulcimer world is as a player. Or in the punk rock world, actually. Because some people, that may not be the thing. I'm that's true. Right. I remember the first time I heard Husker do, I was like, oh, you can take guitar solos. <laughs> you, can, you can have melodies you know right. I mean, was, wow this is, this is only tangentially related but it's I, I don't think I've ever shared this story and it just like came streaming back when you were telling the story about being punched in the gut and like it's just like this is just really an awesome feeling and but that is metaphorical in the case of punk rock it's also literal in some cases <laughs> <laughs> mine was I was 17 and playing I've been playing drums for this uh, for a band that was like really good, and these guys probably had more influence on me. If you, if any of you happen to be listening, like Terry Wiseman, I know's over in Nashville now, great guitar player. Uh, I started playing with these guys when I was about thirteen, mm-hmm. and they were all twenty or so. They were all out of out of high school and all working, you know, regular jobs in this small town of Kennett and they they said, uh, you know, you're you're pretty good. Mm-hmm. But if you want to play with us, you can't drink, you have to stay out of trouble, you have to practice every day and you have to work up all these songs, you know, this whole mm-hmm. good set. And so it was a really even though people might look at the music and think, wow, that music's kind of awful. That was a good thing for me, you know, through those through those years. Um they dropped. They dropped me when I was about seventeen because they found a drummer who was twenty five and could play in bars with them and stuff. And because right. there were places that I just couldn't play because of my age. And uh, so I had just joined this other band, and they were horrible, horrible. I was the singer. 
<laughs> playing drums. Wait, and, and this band was Night Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I don't know. I don't even remember. I just remember seeing the guys and thinking, man, these people are way rougher looking than anybody I've ever hung out with in my life. Mm-hmm. And we're playing in somebody's garage, in somebody's shed attached to their house. It wasn't really a garage. And it was hot and uncomfortable. And I'm singing Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare as oh. loud as I can while playing drums. Nice. And the guy who put the band together got really excited. And this is the odd thing where it just all these worlds crash together. He he goes, wait a second, wait a second. And they had a phone in there. And he says, i got to call my mom and let her hear this. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I burned into my head. Singing Welcome to My Nightmare through a phone to some guy's mom. Because it was, at least he, that was his peak experience. Nice. You know, maybe. In the the 70s, that's what passed it for YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) And it went went viral, which meant all of us missed three days of school. (laughs) It went viral. His mom called the guitar player's mom. And she called back and had to play it again. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But you know, it was one of those defining experiences. Like, this can be really really fun when it all comes together and it's not necessarily about how great it is mm-hmm. it's about how you feel while you're doing it sometimes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think that applies way down the line as well in different uh-huh. things so it's it's that whole thing of getting lost in the music yeah which maybe sure. i would i know i'm going to get skewered for this but i see similarities in trance music and punk well i'm more judgmental than argumentative so Keep <laughs> no, I'm shutting up. <laughs> no, I, actually, it's funny. I, I, because uh, I was sort of, I was thinking about this. I was trying to, uh, I was trying to explain to Trish uh, a, a few weeks ago what it was that I, because one of the things that I really liked was uh, early hip hop, hip hop in like the '90s, back when people still made samples, but would use dozens of samples all at once, you know. And I was trying to explain to her what it was that I liked about it, you know. And she was, and she's like, see, she, you know, I'm telling her what I like. She's like, so you like variations on like tiny ideas. And as, and I'm like, yeah. And she's like, because all I, she says, all I hear is repetition. I don't hear, I don't hear variations on things. I just hear the same thing happening over and over again. And and I realized that 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 is the thing that I like, and and that is a thread. Getting your trans punk thing, that's a thread that I find follows through all of the music that I like, including like, you know, Philip Glass and Steve Reich and kind of that stuff that I, that I like, you know, as well as the early hip hop. And then and the old time music, too, you know, playing the same song for 25 minutes. You know what I mean? The same tunes. No one's taking a solo. Everyone's just playing the tune together. You know, it's the same to me, it's the it's that same thing. It's kind of just like finding a space and living in that space. It's Norman and Nancy Blake's "Just Give Me Something I'm Used To" album. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have heard that, but Mm-mm. you know he's flat picking guitar and the bass lines. When I was really kind of focusing on trying to play bass, that's what I would play bass with a lot. Oh, okay, uh, because it's pretty much the same. Sure, <laughs> yes. on yes. most on most of the pieces. Yeah. But the but the delivery and the stories and the songs and all that stuff changed. And so 
and that's kind of maybe where I think punk rock is, is that there's a bigger message. I'm not down with that message, just to be clear. I, I'm What do you about think that message is? That I don't get this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not angst-filled, and I never have been angst-filled. And I see some angst there that is troubling because I think it can make people be, ah, boy, this is so, I'm sounding like I'm such an old guy now. But I think it can We'll leave. get off your lawn in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I just think all of that angst uh, is, could be better spent and on positive things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but you got to start somewhere. <laughs> well, you could start with the positive, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> there is there there are honestly kids that that were homeless that used to come to our shows and we would get them in for free. I can understand where their angst was coming from. Absolutely, <laughs> but, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think you know, much like uh, it's it's not so different from the dulcimer world in a social that's, way, anyway. That's, that's kind uh, of the point I was making. Right? Earlier. Yeah, I, I get it. But it doesn't mean I have to appreciate it. Oh, yeah, I, I can understand that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not being judgmental. I think I'm not being judgmental when I say that. Uh-huh. I'm just saying there's 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 another way. Yeah, you know of 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 doing this that I think it's yeah boy here I go. It's some methods of finding meaning in life mm-hmm. might. Be, even though all many of them might give you some sort of meaning, in some cases the actual functional. Um, based on a conversation you and I had the other day, Aaron, which we won't go into now, but whether or not it's um, productive, sure. <clears throat> whether or not it's productive, I'm trying to not use the word negative, right? Whether or not it's productive is a measurable thing. Sure. And and the productivity, oh. if productivity has to do with well-being, it didn't work out well for Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten. <laughs> no, but it worked, worked out, out well great for, for Johnny Rotten. Yeah, it worked out great for for a number of people. Um uh I think you know in addition to the angst-filled stuff, there's also kind of a play on that like oh, in, sure. in punk rock. Uh and actually some of some of my favorite musicians are um well, in in punk rock anyway, are uh, also surprisingly have some knowledge of jazz, <laughs> uh, and can kind of spoof punk rock in these really playful ways, even though that's their bread and butter as a band. Um, punk rock or jazz? I mean, it's all it's all a huge like. Uh, are you familiar with uh, No FX? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Minor Threat, which is a band that is credited for starting the straight edge movement. If you've seen kids walking around with big black X's on their hands, meaning that they're completely substance free, but they're, they can also have a reputation of at times being a bit militant and aggressive with this stance. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, minor threat has the, had the song like screamo song called I've got straight edge. Well, no FX, I think pretty brilliantly, did uh did a cover of it where it's all these thirteenth chords super laid back and they're going I got straight edge. <laughs> That's well, you know, um, 
just to kind of further your point, you, the the whole starting really with the squirrel nut zippers, you know, mm-hmm. and and bands like that. Those were all Indian punk bands and alternative mm-hmm. bands that would play this stuff for fun. Do you know they played Nightfall here before you moved here? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that cool? It is cool. But that stuff that they were doing. That stuff that they were doing, they were basically they were they were just doing it for fun. Mountain goats, same thing. Or yeah. they were doing these punk bands, and then they'd get back to Chapel Hill or wherever they were, and just for fun, they'd get together with their friends and they'd play bluegrass or old time music. And just at some point, some of them went, "Man, we should just do this yeah. instead of play <laughs> punk rock." So an embarrassing moment. I remember thinking and being embarrassed because I had, even though I was playing in some you know fairly what we would call metal bands you know which is different from punk rock but a little more structure in a metal band playing that kind of stuff when i was singing alice cooper who also really wasn't a metal band he was a pop theater glam rocker glam rocker kind of thing but and every you know some of my friends were getting into punk rock and then the knack came out i'm like yeah i like punk rock i like the knack i got really skewered for that (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but, but that's, yeah. I mean, that for me, that's what happened. What happened, too, was that I went very quickly uh, from from <coughs> punk rock, where you still had to learn that one power chord, right. to, yeah. to a lot of the a lot of the new wave stuff, because I would listen to the new wave. Like, I remember being, before I ever played an instrument, being very, very young, listening to da-do-do-do, da-da-da-da on sure. the radio, yeah. and the verses got that little ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-
a, a bit meaningless in some ways. It's just mm-hmm, it's sure. sort of descriptive rather than prescriptive. You know, it's not like the world needs people who can't really tune <laughs> make the sound. <laughs> well, I, I was you know I was thinking about watching some documentary on Miles Davis, and they were talking to some guy that was he's like. Miles Davis was so good. Sometimes he would just play a note and wait for the chord to come to him. And yeah. I said, "No, he didn't. No, he did. No, yeah. he did not. He went. Whoops. Gonna stay here from. Oh, okay. Now we can move on. Like, well, or even understand having an understanding, which clearly Miles Davis had an understanding of uh, of uh, dissonance and consonance. Mm-hmm. Dissonance is a huge thing in music, even when it's not jazz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a seven. A dominant seven chord mm-hmm. creates a little bit of dissonance. Yeah, a little bit, and we're so used to it, we don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. Hey, this uh, this may not go anywhere, uh, but you know a lot of stuff, Butch, about musicians. And I recently came across Michael Franks, who had kind of I wasn't familiar with. He was a jazz musician, had a pop song called "Popsicle Toes." Okay. Became kind of popular. And he's, his career was basically playing bad bar jazz singer stuff, but taking it seriously. Huh. And who you might enjoy exploring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's sort of... So even in that realm, somebody goes, oh, wait a second. That's that's where it's not really very good. I think I can make a career at this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to perfect this. Yeah, but so getting back to your to your previous point though, it was was it because he was intentionally that bad, or did he just not know that he was that bad? And you know who does this well today? Seems. It's Lyle Lovett. Yeah, Lyle Lovett recognizes things going on, and he's a millionaire because of it. And so it's like, oh, you can say any stupid thing in country music you want right now. I think I'll be a country singer for a while <laughs> and get some of these thoughts out. I think a lot of these people, well, who's the big guy? Who? Uh, he's uh, one of the judges. Is it Clay? Luke Bryant. No, the guy who wrote uh, Chew Tobacco, Chew Tobacco, Chew Tobacco, Spit. Oh, Blake Shelton. Blake Shelton is totally making fun of his audience in almost every song he has to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> And, I mean, is that offensive? Not to I, me. I don't find it offensive. No, I mean, it's not my... as offensive as that Chew Tobacco song. That song is brilliant. That's well, one of the... the last time I heard that song, it was blaring outside of a pickup truck right in front of me with the, uh, you know, the, the low-hanging truck ornaments. <laughs> um, I've been thinking bit. about putting some of those on my hammer dulcimer. <laughs> I think you should put them on your leaf. <laughs> <laughs> They would clearly drag the ground. <laughs> All so much the better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. I think we've just completely run out of cogent thoughts at this point about this thing. You'll never get this hour back, people. Yeah. You know, um, I had so many other things I wanted to say, but I can't remember. Anything before imagining uh, those truck ornaments on your <laughs> Nissan Leaf? <laughs> uh, the... Yeah, you can't unsee that. Yeah, <laughs> no, sorry about that. No so, <laughs> so what we've been having here is a conversation. Uh, as, as long as we're outside the norm for just a moment, mm-hmm. we've been having a conversation about music. Because mm-hmm. as you start talking about something like music, you 
it's all just conjecture. And I think it's descriptive rather than prescriptive, just like languages are, you know, because mm-hmm. I don't think people, I mean, unless you're trying to write a secret code that's going to be used, for the most part, people aren't saying, okay, now we're going to create a new language. Sure. You know, or, or maybe in computer language it does that, but that's all logic based. But music is something that is organic and just evolves out of what's happening at the time. So, you know, like you, the, the silly thing I said about poetry rhyming, there were a whole lot of people for a while saying, I mean, you can say, well, they were just not, they had no culture saying, I don't understand this because it doesn't rhyme. Because to them, a poem rhymed. A poem had rhymed their entire life. Yeah, yeah. That, and then it was Walt Whitman. He was a, one of the first guys to do that. Yep. And it, and he was he met a fair amount of resistance. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and that's what I'm getting at. And then at some point, and again, I'm out of my league right now, but I assume that the culture of poetry shifted mm-hmm. so that the method of delivery became poetry. Just like somebody who can't tune or play guitar being in a band gets called a musician by virtue of the fact that they're in a thing called a band. Well, also, I mean, it should be, it should be noted that uh, I was hearing, as far as what I said earlier about poetry, I was hearing that stuff at open mics. I wasn't hearing that at poetry readings. There was probably amazing things happening. You know what I mean? And certainly uh, hip-hop was one of the best things to ever happen to poetry because it got back to meter and, and rhyme. And I'm not saying that not rhyming wasn't good, but it made, you know, it it demonstrated that language could be in ex- exciting in and of itself yeah. again in a way that I think had gone dormant a little bit. Yeah. There's a particular hip-hop artist that I'm not going to, I am not going to say his name, that I'm a big fan of because his lyrics are just brilliant. And he expresses things that need to be said. Mm-hmm in one of the more concise ways I've ever heard it done mm-hmm. and also couched in the delivery vehicle. It's just like, this is spot on, you know, and it makes me get the message. I watched, um, I've been watching this, this band that's just come out called, uh, prophets of rage and it's rage against the mach- the band rage against the machine with the lead with Chuck D from Public Enemy and Be Real from Cypress Hill. Okay. So it's the two rappers from these two hip hop bands from the nineties and then the band from Rage Against the Machine without the the guy that rapped for them. And they're doing a mix of everybody's stuff. And I came to realize from watching them do all their stuff, I used to listen to hip hop because I liked the music. I liked all the yeah. samples smashing together on top of each other and that's what I dug about it. More so than what was being said, I appreciated what was being said, mm-hmm. especially especially public enemy who are so socially conscious, right? But there's a whole lot of the teachings of Louis Farrakhan that don't line up with my belief system, sure. you know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I love the music; it was the music I dug, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Macklemore made me okay with shopping at Goodwill again. <laughs> <laughs> I am so sorry for the inside reference there that no, you were sorry. about to look up. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but we're not going there. Okay. Well, I mean, can we just say it's 
It's it's a lovely song <laughs> having to do with saving money by shopping at a thrift store, which yeah, I think I goes against, I, I think, a, another very common theme in some rap music, which is playing up big money. Um, and and truly, you know, as, yeah. as far as, you know, hip hop uh, being related to poetry and the, the best thing that's happened to poetry, I, the one thing it taught me is that there's a lot more money to be made uh, with Rhyming. Yeah. <laughs> that's why all and your meter. poems have started rhyming again. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm into haiku myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Good old. Well, roses are red, violets are blue, poems should rhyme, and stuff. And stuff. And stuff. <laughs> you wrote that yourself. I did. My buddy Latch, a singer songwriter out in New York City, used to have a poem called, I was thinking about this when you were talking earlier, called, it's called Soto Voce. And it goes, why do all poets talk like this? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Drives me nuts. So, folks, listening, thank you for listening. And please don't stop enjoying us because you find out that, I'm not talking about this podcast, I'm talking about us as individuals, that we have very diverse musical backgrounds and like things other than dulcimer. I'm never met what I consider to be a confident, competent, approachable, great musician. That I, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's not where I was going. That once you got to know them, half of the joy of getting to know them was being surprised by where they come from. That they don't live and breathe everything about, you know, about wrapping their reeds, you know, <laughs> or whatever yeah. it, thing it is they're into. They're well, I think I think what, the ones that are really good—that's what makes them really good. I think they so. don't live inside one box. That's right. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. I guess uh, we're going to wrap this. Good up. time. Thanks for coming out this morning, Butch. Sure thing. Don't forget to subscribe, like us on Facebook. <laughs> right. Not supposed to say at the end of these things. Yeah, let's do all that. Let's all say it once, like really fast. Okay. Let's all say our websites. We'll go like three, two, one, and say it. Ready? Three, two, one. DPNewsNetwork.com. Geocities. Yes. My punk band had a Geocities. Please, please like my MySpace page. Now we do hope. Listen, we do hope. Most podcasts are out there shilling for. I've heard so many mattress commercials on podcasts now. Mm-hmm. We're not mm-hmm. going to do that. Right. We just we want to do this because we think it's fun. And it's also fun just getting together. It's a little early to do it. Yes, uh, it is. But the and thank you for pushing the time back to 8. 30 minutes. Yes. <laughs> Aaron and I usually do this at 7.30. Uh, but anyway, we do hope that you'll uh, spread the word. And if you have the ability to like us on Facebook and leave a comment. not fa- Well, Facebook is cool. But mm-hmm. I meant iTunes. Uh, that would be really good. It's not like we get money for it or anything. It's it just matters. Though. It things. matters. Get comments on on iTunes matter. You know, we say that, but I'm sitting here trying to think. Why does it matter? It raises your rankings to all those other Dulcimer podcasts you're competing with. <laughs> <laughs> and when our ranking gets raised, what happens? 
more people listen to it. And you, you get can, more stars. You get more yeah. stars. You get more listeners. You can sell more mattresses. Yeah, if I if I <laughs> if I understand how viralness works, it's that more people will call their mom and play this podcast <laughs> That's over, the, over phone. the phone for them. I'm eighteen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See you later, fellas. <laughs>